0: This is an ABC podcast. G'day, my name's Anne, and this is Off Track, the ABC's nature program. Take a listen to this. At
1: the moment, we've got two, two viable populations. One of them's only 1.6 kilometres long, and the other one's only a fragment of trees in the National Park, which has been grazed by cattle. That's why it's critically endangered. It's probably the bullock jewel, in my opinion, is the second most threatened butterfly in Australia.
0: We're not too far off track. In fact, we're on a roadside verge in a line of trees near Leeburn in Queensland. I'm Anne Jones, and as usual, I'm your eyes and your ABC Radio ears on the ground. If you know where Toowoomba is, we're about 70 k's south in southeast Queensland, and it's in the area of land that has been occupied for thousands of years by the people who speak the Githabul dialect of the Bunjalong tongue. Today, out of an old four wheel drive, jumps a bloke in an impeccably preserved CSIRO entomology jumper. I'm estimating it's from the 1980s. The jumper, not the bloke. He's much older than that.
1: My official title is Dr Don Sands. I'm now a retired honorary fellow and uh, I work for nothing but uh, continue writing up a lot of the work that I used to do when I was employed by CSIRO.
0: This thin strip of bush is the Allangowan Nature Refuge and it's the stronghold of a tiny butterfly. And according to Don Sands, that butterfly is a metaphor for the state of the Australian environment. But we'll get into all of that a bit later.
1: The Bull Oak Jewel gets called the Bull Oak Jewel because it lives on the Bull Oak, but it looks like a jewel. Underneath the wings you've got a greyish background with little golden, silver, green and bright red spots and they're all arranged in a most extraordinary way. So they use that complex but beautiful to us pattern of colours as a method of identifying each other. Yes, they use pheromones too, but when they're flying on the wing it's those tiny patterns which are so prettily organised that they use to recognise their own kind. Now when we're looking for butterflies, which I'll do right now, I searched the canopy, and they're only little, as you know, very hard to see, but they have a flight pattern which is distinctive, because they'll sit there quietly for a while, and then they'll move. Don
0: didn't discover the butterfly, but two of his friends did. It was the late 1960s and Dr John Kerr, who was actually a pretty famous professor of pathology, and a local farmer, Jack McQueen, netted the very first known specimens of this butterfly near Leeburn.
1: So having known these two guys for a while, they said, would I like to join with them and try and sort out the identity of the butterfly? We did that and it got described Scientifically, as Hypochrysops piciatus, piciatus means spotted with pitch, and that then became known as the bull oak jewel because it only fed and still only is known to feed on bull oaks.
0: But by the 1970s, roads had already been cut through Queensland. Land had been cleared for agriculture, towns and mining, and as soon as the butterfly was scientifically christened, it was instantaneously an extremely rare species.
1: And we searched high and low from right out to Gundawindi and north to Cecil Plains and down to the border, but we couldn't find the bull oak jewel anywhere else.
0: It's only ever been found in three places, and it's among the rarest creatures in the world. But the bull oak, the tree on which the butterfly relies, is actually a relatively widespread
1: species. Bull oaks, basically a casuarina. Its scientific name is Alacasuarina luminii. It has got quite a wide distribution. It occurs, I think, from about Mariba in Queensland, right away to all the eastern states down to about uh, South Australia. But it's an inland plant. It's a dry, adapted plant. doesn't have a lot of uses for people. They use them for fence posts sometimes. They use them for ternary and chop them down to, to make little carvings and things out of it usually gets knocked down these days, and people regard it as a bit of a rubbish plant. So
0: much of the old-growth bull oak, that's trees over 50 years old, has been flattened and just disappeared from the All landscape.
1: Back the, Oops.
0: the strip of trees in the Allangowan Nature Refuge is a remnant of woodland that's now almost completely absent from this area and endangered on a national scale.
1: Yes, well, it's semi-open woodland, uh, predominant trees are bull oaks. The ground surface is unusual. It would appear to an average person being almost sterile. There's old wood and lots
0: of the bull oak leaves, mm. which are sort of long needle-like leaves right across the whole surface.
1: And it's those needles which I believe are an ecosystem of their own, which we've never really investigated. If you think of the soil crust, the cyanobacteria, the collembola, all the other organisms that are living under there. We know absolutely nothing about it. I don't think anyone's even done a pH test on this soil to find out what the acidity is like.
0: Like so much of Australia's wild heritage, it's incredibly understudied. And Don Sands was commissioned by the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads to spend time investigating the butterfly right here in its environment on the edge of a road.
1: Well, like all little butterflies, uh, it goes through various stages. The butterflies don't live very long, probably about 10, 15 days. And of course, they get eaten by birds too and lizards and everything else that's around the place and the butterflies feed on nectar from flowers they have a limited number of plants they go to basically the thing they like most in my opinion are the mistletoe flowers and the butterflies mate in the sunny canopies of the bull oaks what do the eggs look like and how are they arranged they lay about three to seven at once now, she puts them in a clump on a hole made by a mistletoe, where a mistletoe sort of got its roots into the tree. There's often a lot of rot holes and beetle holes. They often use those to put their eggs on there. Now, the eggs will sit there depending on the warmth and the time of the year until they hatch as tiny caterpillars. We believe the ants pick up those caterpillars, carry them into their nests or into the hollow twigs, and they actually look after them. It's a very interesting interaction.
0: yes. There is a specific species of ant which picks up that specific species of caterpillar and hoists it up like a sack of spuds to cart it off to a safe space. The caterpillars are tiny little things. They're basically defenceless against a whole range of threats. So it's incredibly beneficial to have ant childcare workers to make sure that your caterpillars are fed and kept safe from predators.
1: But what's in it for the ants? Caterpillars actually produce an attractive secretion which is made up of honeydew and amino acids which the ants really like. And that's what attracts the ants. At what point do the ants become aware or interested in the eggs? Almost straight away. In fact, she won't lay her eggs unless there's evidence of the ants being on that tree. It doesn't take very long before the ants are browsing around and find the eggs. Once the eggs are there, the ants will stay with them. And they'll hatch in 9 to 15 days anyway, depending on the temperatures. And then the ants get very busy and carry those caterpillars off. And they're not so tiny ants, these ones. They're they're larger than the ants that come into our kitchens and cause troubles. Their mandibles aren't so small, and they have no trouble carrying what we call the first instar larvae. But after that, of course, they have to guide the caterpillars to the leaves. They can't carry them when they're five millimeters long. Once the caterpillars are at a certain size, the caterpillars then follow ant trails to the leaves. So the pheromone is laid down by the ants and the caterpillars actually follow the trails from the hollow twigs in the trunk or in the branches out to the young leaves and come back again when they've had their meal.
0: Do the ants accompany the caterpillar on its nightly journeys like sheepdogs?
1: They do. They clamber all over them. Uh, The larger caterpillars would have anything from three to five ants crawling all over it. And don't forget their role as warding off natural enemies too. That's their main benefit to the caterpillar.
0: What would be the natural enemies of a
1: butterfly caterpillar? Well, the natural enemies start with the eggs. There's some minuscule little wasps that lay their eggs in the eggs of the butterflies and kill them. And I would think a large percentage of the eggs die at that stage. But later on, if the ants are not quite skillful enough, there's at least two species of wasp and one species of fly that will lay its eggs on or in the caterpillar. And of course, that means that when the wasp egg hatches, the maggot of that wasp or of the fly will eat the contents of the caterpillar and kill it. So there's an exchange here between looking after the caterpillars and stopping the predators and parasites getting them because the ants are a bit vicious. And then the trade-off is the caterpillars produce this sugary secretion. After the caterpillars have reached their stage of maturity, they will go into a resting stage, and then they turn into chrysalises or pupae. And then within seven or eight days, they'll hatch out as butterflies. Once they're butterflies, they're vulnerable. They've got to get a meal, mate, lay eggs, or they're gone. And they're a very bright little butterfly. can imagine those birds licking their chops when they see this butterfly hop out Flashing their colours.
0: The birds also play another part in this, and that is with mistletoe. Australian mistletoes are a sort of parasitic plant that spend their whole life up in the air on tree branches. There is a mistletoe bird that is absolutely imperative to spread the seeds. It really loves eating the mistletoe fruit, and the poo comes out the other end sticky and full of seeds. Now, when the mistletoe bird feels the urge, they turn their body along the branch rather than off it and deposit the seed directly onto the tree instead of onto the
1: ground. Mistletoe scars. Let's go and look at the other side.
0: Work by David Watson at Charles Sturt University has indicated that mistletoe is in fact a real driver of biodiversity. In his study, when mistletoe was present in a woodland, there were up to three times more variety in birds. And according to Don Sands, it goes even further than that.
1: Now, if you talk to average farmer or gardener for that matter, seeing a clump of mistletoe is a threat to the tree it's growing on. I have a total reversal on that view i found mistletoes are carrying the highest biodiversity of the predators that the farmers need than any other group of plants. But they're very important bugs which go into the farm at the right time of the year when the best caterpillars are there and they stick their beacon and suck the juices out of the pest caterpillars. We have uh, several predatory bugs for example. There's one called Ecalia. The parasites too. Some of them are terribly fragile. The lacewings They can't fly very far. They've got to be near the crops, but a huge number of them live in mistletoes. Mistletoes seem to be like a zoo of suitable prey for these native predators. So that means if you clear the bushland with the mistletoes, the bugs can't get from three or four kilometres away. They need to be close to the farmland. I can see a a stump of a dead mistletoe up there because it's died in the drought but that's what we're looking for, preferably alive. But, I mean, look what the drought's done to us.
0: On Off Track, you're listening to Dr Don Sands from the CSIRO piecing together the incredibly complex needs of Australia's second rarest butterfly, the Bull Oak Jewel.
1: There's another potential habitat tree there that's got branches all through it.
0: The caterpillars only eat tender oak leaves and they need a specific ant to be nanny to their caterpillars. So to save the butterfly, you have to save the ant. Tell me what we know about this ant.
1: That's the best question I've had. Very, very little. It's called, um, we'll call it itinerants group. It's a group of ants that are all closely related but unfortunately, they've never been studied to the point of having a species identified. Some of them have. Some of the southern ones in that group, in the Artenerums group, have got a name. And even some of them that attend butterflies, different to the bull oak jewel, they are named already. But this one hasn't got a name. And it's the ant I worry about more than anything, because unless there's high densities of that ant, you don't get any of the bull oak jewels but there's worse than that. It's limited to a very narrow geographical area. I've done a lot of work on looking for this ant and I find the old patches around the place, no bull oak jewels. I think the ant is a, well equally at risk as the butterfly, although at least it can survive without the butterfly and it can survive in low densities, whereas the butterfly can't. And I think one of the characteristics of this site we're working on, there are more ant numbers There's a higher density in that area. That's explaining what's driving the system. So even if the ants there and the bullocks there, there might be a mistletoe to attract the lot. If it's not in a high density, the butterfly doesn't establish there.
0: Right, so it needs a really healthy population of these ants. The ants like the nectar of mistletoe and they really seem to like this excretion from the butterfly caterpillars. What else do they need to survive?
1: Well, that's the extraordinary thing. They basically live in upright scars on trees, so they're either lightning scars or even the uh, sort of holes that birds nest in high in the Angoperas. They like to live in those too. But they like dead wood above ground. And we've found they only like reasonably large logs, which is the problem, because uh, this is where we see an awful lot of timber removed for firewood. They won't go below ground. I've tried putting soil over the top of an ant run and they'll quickly get out of it. So unlike many ants, they won't live underground at all. This makes them very vulnerable. If you put a fire through, they're gone. If they are living in a log that's lying on the ground and someone cuts up the wood and removes it for firewood, the ants are gone. And I think we've got to think about the threatening process to the ant just as much as we do the processes for the butterfly. Actually, if there's none here will choose another spot.
0: I'm Ann Jones and these are my footsteps crackling in the very dry needles of Bullock as Don Sands searches
1: for the Goldilocks ant. Well, there's ants there alright. They like to run along logs.
0: The very perfect ant for the bull oak jewel. Here are the ants here. and see oh, these? Yeah. How can you tell it's the right ant?
1: Oh, because it smells right to me. <laughs> it smells the right way, yeah. And um, when you get a scar like that, they'll often nest in there. I think the, the the upright scars and the dead hollows in the trees are basic to getting firm colonies going. The bullocks are fine, but they don't often have these scars. And it's often the old eucalypts where we have what we call a a core colony for the ants. that's something that we might not have put enough emphasis on.
0: So while the ants have smaller groups living on the bull oaks and in the deadwood on the ground around them, they have these feeder colonies, super-sized ant cities which live in huge old gum trees. And then they use that network of logs and sticks to stay clear of the earth and form colonies in the bull oak scars near mistletoe flowers. See just how this system gets more and more and more complex. Now we've got two types of tree, and one of those trees needs a specific parasite, a mistletoe, to be living on it. And the mistletoe, that has to do with a bird. And at no point does the mistletoe ever come into contact with the soil, which is sort of like the ants. Neither of them like soil. But even if all of those steps line up, the tree species, the bird, the logs, the seed in a poo it doesn't necessarily mean that the mistletoe will grow.
1: Because if they don't put the excreted seed on the right age of branch with the amount of moisture in the stem, then the seed doesn't germinate. And that's one of the biggest problems I note here. Now, the trouble with mistletoe is in drought, it suffers more than the host trees. So the first thing to go is the mistletoe is they die. And where we're working, you'll see 80% of the mistletoes in the last 10 years have died. That's a threat to the whole system. The other thing we're having a problem with too now is lightning strikes and uh, they're far more dry lightning strikes than we've ever had before and violent winds which are knocking the trees down.
0: Um, Why is there more dry lightning now?
1: I think everyone agrees that climate change has resulted in a number of side effects including more storms, more dry lightning strikes and more fires that result from those. Because all of these insects have what we call a climate envelope on which they are dependent. Plants and all vertebrates have temperature envelopes as well. But in invertebrates it's often very, very sensitive. Sometimes their torpor limits at the upper level and the lower limit are very, very fine indeed. So if you get a temperature over 40, of a thing like the bull oak jewel caterpillar, it could just drop dead on you.
0: And hot conditions, droughts, have another heartbreaking impact on the butterfly caterpillars.
1: Those tiny caterpillars, when they hatch from an egg, are not even two millimetres long. They're tiny. A caterpillar one and a half millimetres long, how big is it mandibles? How can those mandibles chew a leaf unless it's soft? Now, if you've had periods of drought like we've got right now, there's no soft leaves at all. Every caterpillar hatching from an egg and being helped by the ants to find the leaves. Ant can't tell whether the leaves are soft or, or hard. That caterpillar, if it gets a bite in there, it's doing well. But if the leaves are tough because of the drought, it'll die. So that's a natural process, yes. But it's not natural when that goes on month in and month out. It's the duration of the droughts that's having the impact. If that's a potential habitat tree... That probably means that when I saw butterflies flying around, so let's see what we can see. I became involved in the conservation side of things, the Baloch Jewel, quite a long time back, and uh, uh, really it hasn't achieved any objective we set out to do. In other words, could we find a way of recovering this species? The first effort, really, though, it was made by the Department of Environment of the day. They decided to try and get conservation category put on the strip at Leeburn. They then worked out a way of putting a category that came under the State Act called a nature refuge on that site. But um, I've just completed now um, a report for Main Roads to see where we're at. And it's pretty grim. The three months' work I did there, I only saw six individual butterflies. And Probably two of them were the same butterfly. There were six sightings, probably only five or, or, that you could guarantee were separate individuals. For an insect, that is drastic. That is very near the edge of extinction. You've only got to get one tiny problem, and we've got many problems, drought included, on top of that, and the thing can go extinct. Moraine roads have now asked me to do another uh, evaluation of some extensions of some kilometres east and west of the current refuge. That's where we're at now, and it's a, a vitally important step. So by way of background, that's the way I feel about this important project. It's a model, if you like, to use that popular word, for where we must go in preserving these tiny fragments of bushland. We've really got to get the federal government a bit more interested in preserving these fragments. They're often fragments that are carrying more than just pretty butterflies. They're carrying the beneficial organisms on which the farmers are dependent. But there is a point here that I should make and that is it's not just preserving the patch. We're talking about corridors. The roadside fragments act as corridors for vertebrates as well as for insects. And you can't separate the two. When you think of the linkages and you were touching on the survival of birds and the connection with mistletoe, to me the beauty is the extension of that and ultimately to see that we're part of that extinction. But it's very hard to get people to understand that at this stage. It really is very, very difficult.
0: Dr. Don Sands, OAM, is an honorary fellow with the CSIRO and he's an advocate for a national roadside reserve system. But more than that, though, Don Sands wants us to understand that this one rare butterfly is a metaphor for the environment and our place within it, a complex and interconnected system of which every part is important. Don Sands was dubbed in by an off-track listener for this story. Thank you, Charles. I really loved meeting Don. I'm Ann Jones. This is Off Track. And make sure you clean your boots off, ready for next time. That's when I'll take you somewhere else.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.